thought I'd uh, start off the morning readings with an essay uh, from Ajahn Jeff uh, on the subject of uh, sense restraint. Very practical, I found, suggestions. Uh, and it's entitled The Skill of Restraint, and it's from 2007. People often ask how to bring the practice into daily life. The answer is relatively simple. It's one many people don't like to hear, but it is simple. Restraint. There are basically two kinds of restraint. There is restraint in what you do, and restraint in how you look and listen and smell and taste and feel and think about things. In other words, restraint in what goes out, and restraint in what comes in. And both kinds of restraint require a good amount of skill. Take restraint of the senses. There's a skill to looking, a skill to listening. You want to look at things in such a way that you're not exciting greed, anger, or delusion. You want to listen to things in such a way that you don't excite greed, anger, or delusion. And so on, down through the senses. This is a skill. You want to be able to do it in such a way that you don't starve yourself of pleasures to the point where you break down and suddenly find yourself in front of an open refrigerator, scarfing down a gallon of ice cream. You need to know how to keep the mind well-fed even as you're starving your defilements. In mastering this skill, it helps to have concentration as a foundation. The texts often give restraint of the senses as a prerequisite for concentration. But as, it, as is so often the case in the Buddha's teachings, the two qualities actually help each other along. Try to notice when you look at something. Does your attention go flowing out? Do you lose your sense of the body? If you do, it's a sign that your looking isn't all that skillful. You want to be able to stay in the body as you look, as you listen, to maintain your sense of the breath energy throughout the body. If you can't, that's a sign either that you're looking for the purpose of forgetting the body, in other words, you're looking with the purpose of greed, anger, or delusion, or you're simply careless, and the sight, the sound, the smell, or the taste, whatever, happen to catch you off guard. That's how most people look and listen and smell and taste and feel and think about things. They forget their inner center and suddenly find themselves centered outside, trying to get some pleasure from grabbing onto a sight or a sound and then elaborating on it, either to make it more attractive or to make it seem more meaningful than it actually is. If the mind is in a mood for a little bit of anger, you focus on the things that would provoke the anger and then you can elaborate on it, proliferate as much as you like. Those are where our skills tend to be. We're great at proliferating, but if you think of input at the senses as a kind of food for the mind, which is how the Buddha sees it, you have to ask yourself, are you preparing good food for the mind or junk food or poisonous food? That's the kind of cooking we're used to. We think we're cooking up great meals, but they can make us sick. So you've got to learn a new way to cook for the mind. The Buddha counts sensory input among the four foods for consciousness. It actually includes three of the four, contact at the senses, intentions at the senses, why you're looking at these things, listening to these things to begin with, and then consciousness of the act of sensing. These three aspects of sensory input are what the mind is feeding on all the time. 
The basic skill in learning new ways to cook this food is to focus on the breath and get the mind centered inside. You're actually changing the level of the mind when it's inside the body in this way. Instead of being on the sensual level, it's suddenly on the level of form, which is a higher level than the level of sensual desire. Even though there may be the desire to stay here at the level of form, it's a skillful desire because it raises the level of the mind. You're not so dependent on things outside for your happiness, and you're in a position where you can look at sensual pleasures from above. At the same time, you're learning how to make the most of what you've already got. As Ajahn Lee says, it's like learning how to grow food on your own property rather than invading the property of others to plant crops on their land. Learn how to develop a sense of ease, a sense of fullness and refreshment right here in the body. Make that your food. Try to preserve and protect that level of the mind. That's the skill in how you look at things and listen to things. Maintaining this sense of the center in the body, a sense of ease, refreshment, and fullness, no matter what happens outside, that puts the mind on a higher plane and in a much better position. When you handle restraint of the senses in this way, you're not depriving the mind. You're simply learning how to give the mind better food, to nourish it in a healthier way, a way that's totally blameless. Sometimes you hear people talking about the dangers of getting attached to jhana, as if it were a huge monster waiting to ambush you on the side of the path. But the dangers of jhana are relatively minor. The dangers of being stuck on the sensual level, though, are huge. When your happiness is dependent on sensory pleasures being a certain way, it can lead to all sorts of unskillful behavior as you try to keep on feeding the mind the kind of sights, sounds, etc. that it likes. This is why we see so much killing and stealing, illicit sex, lying, getting drunk around us in the world. All the precepts get broken because of people's attachments to the pleasures of the senses. You don't see anybody killing or stealing because of their attachment to jhana. So even though this is an attachment, it's a better one. And when your happiness is not dependent on things outside being a certain way, people outside have less power over you. We see this so much these days. All they have to do is to wave the red flag. Quote, there's danger out there. There are terrorists out there. They can harm us. We've got to do all kinds of evil things to stop them, unquote. That's what they tell us. If the mind's only nourishment is things outside, you're going to be swayed by those arguments. But when you step back and say, no, I've got a source of pleasure, a source of happiness inside that people outside can't touch, then you're much less likely to be led astray. In this way, your ability to find nourishment inside is protection for the mind. The pleasures of the world outside hold a lot less poison because you're not trying to feed on them anymore. They're still there, but you can learn how to handle them more skillfully, use them more skillfully, as you try to make the mind even stronger. For instance, there will be times in your meditation when things aren't going as well as you'd like. In cases like that, it can be helpful to go outside and look at the beauty of nature around you, the clouds, the sunset, the moon, and the stars at night, to help clear and refresh your mind. 
There are passages in the canon where Mahakasapa, who was one of the strictest and sternest of the Buddha's disciples, talks about the beauty of nature. The constant refrain in his verses is of how the hills, the mountains bathed in rain, and the jungle refresh him. Some of the first wilderness poetry in the world is in the Pali Canon, an appreciation of the beauties of not just nature, but of wild nature. That sort of appreciation is part of the skill in learning how to gladden the mind. What this comes down to is that, as the Buddha said, even something as simple as looking or listening can be developed as a skill. You look and listen while at the same time trying to maintain your sense of being centered inside. This is one of the best measurements for how much greed, anger, or delusion is lurking in the mind and pushing it around. If you catch the mind flowing out to a particular object, there you are. You've found a defilement. Many of us in the West don't like the word defilement. We deny that there's anything defiled in our minds, and yet when the mind is clouded by desire, narrowed by desire, that's precisely what the Buddha means. Your sense of inner awareness gets obscured and narrowed as your attention goes flowing out. According to Ajahn Lee, the tendency to flow out to things is the meaning of asa, effluent or fermentation. That kind of looking and listening, the kind where your mind flows out to the subject, is unskillful looking, unskillful listening. If you're skillful, you can stay inside while you see and hear. When you catch the mind in the course of flowing out, you've learned an important lesson, that there's still greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. If you want to look for it, here it is. Only when you see it can you actually do something about it. You begin to sense the danger of falling for those currents. You develop the motivation to want to do something about it so that you don't have to get pushed around like this anymore. You find a way of stopping the flow at its source. This is where you find that being inside the form of the body really is a higher level of food for the mind, a higher level of happiness, a better place to be. You want to do everything you can to stay here, regardless of what happens outside. When a wildfire swoops down the mountainside at you, you want to stay right where you are. You may want to move the body, of course, but you want your center to stay right here inside the body. When disappointments come in life, you still want to stay here and not let the disappointments from outside make inroads into the mind. When a cold wave comes or a heat wave comes, you want to be able to find your refreshment, your sense of well-being here in the body. This is why restraint of the senses is not deprivation. It's actually a way of feeding the mind better food, giving it a higher level of pleasure. But you can't have everything. If you go for the more dangerous food, you miss out on the better food. You've got to make the choice, health food or junk food. In that sense, restraint is a form of deprivation. But it's actually a trade. You're getting something better in return. As you go through the day, keep asking yourself that question. What am I feeding on right now? And what is it saying about the mind? What am I learning about the mind by watching the way I feed? In this way, the simple act of looking or listening is part of the practice. If you do it skillfully, it's nourishment for the practice. It keeps it going. The path doesn't provide refreshment for the mind only while you sit here with your eyes closed or while you're doing walking meditation. 
When you know how to exercise restraint, you can gain refreshment throughout the day. There's a continuity in the practice. When you sit down and close your eyes, you're right here. You don't have to spend the whole hour pulling the mind in like a cat on a leash because it's already here. You've already been developing the wisdom and discernment that protect the mind, keeping it here. You don't have to cook them up fresh every time you sit down to meditate. So think of everything you do throughout the day as a skill, including the way you exercise restraint. Sometimes that means not looking at or listening to the things you don't know how to deal with yet. Like a beginning boxer who knows enough not to take on a world champion. But you won't have to go through life with blinders on all the time. You can teach yourself how to look at things that used to set off your anger or set off your lust, but you do it in a new way, a way in which they don't set you off. If there's something you feel greed for, look at the unattractive side of getting. What would be involved in trying to gain that thing and keep it? If there's lust, think of the unattractive side of the human body, your own and that of everyone around you. As Ajahn Lee would say, Look at things with both eyes, not just one. And furthermore, stay centered right here while you're doing your looking so that you can check and see if, as you're looking and listening, you're really staying separate from the defilement. Or are you sneaking it in? Are you flowing along with it? This is why restraint is a good check on the mind in two senses of the word check, not only to stop it, but also to keep tabs on what's actually going on. If the defilements seem really quiet while you sit in meditation, well, here's your chance to test them. Do they flow out during the rest of the day? Restraint is what provides continuity to the practice. If you do it skillfully, your looking and listening all become part of the practice. They can keep you on the path all day long. Okay, move on to finishing up the uh, reading. Uh, from Ajahn Chah on uh, the Fountain of Wisdom. So this is the last, the last several pages of that. Both happiness and suffering arise from clinging. The cultivators of old saw their minds in this way. There is only arising and ceasing. There is no abiding entity. They contemplated from all angles and saw that there was nothing much to this mind. They saw nothing is stable. There is only arising and ceasing, ceasing and arising. Nothing is of any lasting substance. While walking or sitting, they saw things in this way. Wherever they looked, there was only suffering, that's all. It's just like a big iron ball which has just been blasted in a furnace. It's hot all over. If you touch the top, it's hot. Touch the sides and they're hot. It's hot all over. There isn't any place on it which is cool. Now, if we don't consider these things, we won't know anything about them. We must see clearly. Don't get born into things. Don't fall into birth. Know the workings of birth. Such thoughts as, oh, I can't stand that person. He does everything wrong, will no longer arise. Or, I really like so-and-so. These things don't arise. There remains merely the conventional worldly standards of like and dislike. But one speech is one way one's mind another. They are separate things. We must use the conventions of the world to communicate with each other, but inwardly we must be empty. 
The mind is above those things. We must bring the mind to transcendence like this. This is the abiding of the noble ones. We must all aim for this and practice accordingly. Don't get caught up in doubts. Before I started to practice, I thought to myself, the Buddhist religion is here, available for all, and yet why do only some people practice while others don't? Or if they do practice, they do only for a short while and then give up. Or again, those who don't give it up still don't knuckle down and do the practice. Why is this? So I resolved to myself, okay, I'll give up this body and mind for this lifetime and try to follow the teaching of the Buddha down to the last detail. I'll reach understanding in this very lifetime, because if I don't, I'll still be stuck in suffering. I'll let go of everything else and make a determined effort. No matter how much difficulty or suffering I have to endure, I'll persevere. If I don't do it, I'll just keep on doubting. Thinking like this, I got down to practice. No matter how much happiness, suffering, or difficulty I had to endure, I would do it. I looked on my whole life as if it was only one day and a night. I gave it up. I'll follow the teaching of the Buddha. I'll follow the Dhamma to understanding. Why is this world of delusion so wretched? I wanted to know. I wanted to master the teaching. So I turned to the practice of Dhamma. How much of the worldly life do we monastics renounce? If we have gone forth for good, then it means we renounce it all. There's nothing we don't renounce. All the things of the world that people enjoy are cast off. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and feelings. We throw them all away. And yet, we experience them. So Dhamma practitioners must be content with little and remain detached. Whether in regard to speech, eating, or whatever, we must be easily satisfied. Eat simply, sleep simply, live simply. Just like they say, an ordinary person is one who lives simply. The more you practice, the more you will be able to take satisfaction in your practice. You will see into your own heart. The Dhamma is pachatam. You must know it for yourself. To know for yourself means to practice for yourself. You can depend on a teacher only 50% of the way. Even the teaching I have given you today is completely useless in itself, even if it is worth hearing. But if you were to believe it all just because I said so, you wouldn't be using the teaching properly. If you believed me completely, you'd be foolish. To hear the teaching, see its benefit, put it into practice for yourself, see it within yourself, do it yourself. This is much more useful. You will then know the taste of Dhamma for yourself. This is why the Buddha didn't talk about the fruits of the practice in much detail, because it's something one can't convey in words. It would be like trying to describe different colors to a person blind from birth. Oh, it's so white, or it's bright yellow, for instance. You couldn't convey these colors to them. You could try, but it wouldn't serve much purpose. The Buddha brings it back down to the individual. See clearly for yourself. If you see clearly for yourself, you will have clear proof within yourself. Whether standing, walking, sitting, or reclining, you will be free of doubt. Even if someone were to say, your practice isn't right, it's all wrong, still you would be unmoved because you have your own proof. A practitioner of the Dhamma must be like this wherever he goes. Others can't tell you, you must know for yourself. Samaditi must be there. The practice must be like this for every one of us. To do the real practice like this for even one month out of five or ten range retreats would be rare. 
Our sense organs must be constantly working. Know content and discontent. Be aware of like and dislike. Know appearance and know transcendence. The apparent and the transcendent must be realized simultaneously. Good and evil must be seen as coexistent, arising together. This is the fruit of the Dhamma practice. So whatever is useful to yourself and to others, whatever practice benefits both yourself and others, is called following the Buddha. I've talked about this often. The things which should be done, people seem to neglect. For example, the work in the monastery, the standards of practice, and so on. I've talked about them often, and yet people don't seem to put their hearts into it. Some don't know, some are lazy and can't be bothered, some are simply scattered and confused. But that's a cause for wisdom to arise. If we go to places where none of these things rise, what would we see? Take food, for instance. If food doesn't have any taste, is it delicious? If a person is deaf, will he hear anything? If you don't perceive anything, will you have anything to contemplate? If there are no problems, will there be anything to solve? Think of the practice in this way. Once I went to live up north. At that time, I was living with many monks, all of them elderly but newly ordained, with only two or three rains retreats. At the time, I had ten rains. Living with those old monks, I decided to perform the various duties, receiving their bowls, washing their robes, emptying their spittoons, and so on. I didn't think in terms of doing it for any particular individual. I simply maintained my practice. If others didn't do the duties, I'd do them myself. I saw it as a good opportunity for me to gain merit. It made me feel good and gave me a sense of satisfaction. On the Uposita days, I knew the required duties. I'd go and clean out the Uposita hall and set out the water for washing and drinking. The others didn't know anything about the duties. They just watched. I didn't criticize them because they didn't know. I did the duties myself, and having done them, I felt pleased with myself. I had inspiration and a lot of energy in my practice. Whenever I could do something in the monastery, whether in my own kuti or in others, if it was dirty, I'd clean it up. I didn't do it for anyone in particular. I didn't do it to impress anyone. I simply did it to maintain a good practice. Cleaning a kuti or a dwelling place is just like cleaning rubbish out of your own mind. Now, this is something all of you should bear in mind. You don't have to worry about harmony. It will automatically be there. Live together with dhamma, with peace and restraint. Train your mind to be like this, and no problems will arise. If there is heavy work to be done, everybody helps out, and in no time the work is done. It gets taken care of quite easily. That's the best way. I have come across other types, though. I use it as an opportunity to grow. For instance, living in a big monastery, the monks and novices may agree among themselves to wash robes on a certain day. I'd go and boil up the jackfruit wood. Now there would be some monks who'd wait for someone else to boil up the jackfruit wood and then come along and wash their robes, take them back to their kutis, hang them out, and then take a nap. They didn't have to set up the fire, didn't have to clean up afterwards. They thought they were on a good thing, that they were being clever. This is the height of stupidity. These people are just increasing their own stupidity because they don't do anything. They leave all the work up to others. They wait till everything is ready, then come along and make use of it. It's easy for them. This is just adding to one's foolishness. Those actions serve no purpose whatsoever to them.
Some people think foolishly like this. They shirk the required duties and think that this is being clever, but it is actually very foolish. If we have that sort of attitude, we won't last. Therefore, whether speaking, eating, or doing anything whatsoever, reflect on yourself. You may want to live comfortably, eat comfortably, sleep comfortably, and so on, but you can't. What have we come here for? If we regularly reflect on this, we will be heedful. We won't forget. We will be constantly alert. Being alert like this, you will put forth effort in all postures. If you don't put forth effort, things go quite differently. Sitting, you sit like you're in the town. Walking, you walk like you're in the town. You just want to go and play around in the town with the lay people. If there is no effort in the practice, the mind will tend in that direction. You don't oppose and resist your mind. You just allow it to waft along like the wind of your moods. This is called following one's moods. Like a child, if he indulges all his wants, will he be a good child? If the parents indulge all their child's wishes, is that good? Even if they do indulge him somewhat at first, by the time he can speak, they may start to occasionally spank him because they're afraid he'll end up stupid. The training of our mind must be like this. You have to know yourself and how to train yourself. If you don't know how to train your own mind, waiting around expecting someone else to train it for you, you'll end up in trouble. So don't think that you can't practice in this place. Practice has no limits. While standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, you can always practice. Even while sweeping the monastery grounds or seeing a beam of sunlight, you can realize the Dhamma. But you must have sati at hand. Why so? Because you can realize the Dhamma at any time at all, in any place, if you ardently meditate. Don't be heedless. Be watchful. Be alert. While walking on alms round, all sorts of feelings arise. And it's all good Dhamma. When you get back to the monastery and are eating your food, there's plenty of good Dhamma for you to look into. If you have constant effort, all these things will be objects for contemplation. There will be wisdom. You will see the Dhamma. This is called Dhamma Vichaya, reflecting on Dhamma. It's one of the enlightenment factors. If there is sati, recollection, there will be Dhamma Vichaya as a result. These are factors of enlightenment. If we have recollection, then we won't simply take it easy. There will also be inquiry into Dhamma. These things become factors for realizing the Dhamma. If we have reached this stage, our practice will know neither day or night. It will continue on regardless of the time of day. There will be nothing to taint the practice. Or, if there is, we will immediately know it. Let there be Dhamma-vichaya within our minds constantly, looking into Dhamma. If our practice has entered the flow, the mind will tend to be like this. It won't go off after other things. I think I'll go for a trip over there, or perhaps this other place. Over in that province should be interesting. That's the way of the world. Not long, and the practice will die. So resolve yourselves. It's not just by sitting with your eyes closed that you develop wisdom. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind are constantly with us. So be constantly alert. Study constantly. Seeing trees or animals can all be occasions for study. Bring it all inwards. See clearly with your own heart. 
If some sensation makes an impact on the heart, witness it clearly for yourself. Don't simply regard it. Take a simple comparison, baking bricks. Have you ever seen a brick baking oven? They build the fire up about two or three feet in front of the oven. Then the smoke all gets drawn into it. Looking at this illustration, you can more clearly understand the practice. To make a brick kiln work the right way, you have to make the fire so that all the smoke gets drawn inside. None left over. All the heat goes into the oven, and then the job gets done quickly. We Dhamma practitioners should experience things in this way. All, all our feelings should be drawn inwards to be turned into right view. The sights we see, the sounds we hear, the odors we smell, the flavors we taste, and so on. The mind draws them all inward to be converted into right view. Those feelings thus become experiences which give rise to wisdom. It's the end of that teaching. Okay, have a few minutes. People have any comments, questions? Was that from being Dharma? No, that was in the collected teachings. Oh, right, right. Yeah, That's the fountain, right. the fountain of wisdom. I think it used to be titled "The Sense Bases: The Fountain of Wisdom" or something like that. Was retitled for this book. It's in uh, volume three. That's yeah, a really nice essay or talk. I think the uh, thing that strikes me too from Ajahn Jeff's essay is uh, just that constant reminder to watch the flow of the mind. Um, when engaged particularly with uh, outside sense uh, stimulation, just you know, watching that flow of mind as it, as it goes out to a sense object rather than just staying you know, right within uh, the immediate location, the body, the body awareness, and letting the sense data flow in uh, through the mind, through the sense base for sure, but, but then it flows through the mind rather than the mind going out to the object objectifying the, the experience um, in that way. Rather, one just stays in and lets it flow through. I think uh, I just triggered a memory when I was in Anagarika and uh, driving Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Vasudhi back from the coast late at night one night. And it was, a, it was you know, the windy road uh, from the coast back to here. And uh, late at night, foggy, uh, slightly, maybe even rainy, I can't remember. And uh, I was kind of having trouble just kind of keeping awake and keeping on the road. And, and uh, it was Ajahn Vasudhi, actually, who, who just said, practice with just, uh, rather than you driving down the road, uh, practice with you just being here and let the, road come, let the road come through you, let the road come through your awareness. And that was actually quite helpful uh, to stay centered and let the experience just come through my sense bases and through my mind without going out to it. Yesterday, uh, just reminded me too, yesterday, uh, one of the references was to um, uh, the Nisarana, the, um, the escape, actually, uh, from uh, getting entangled, uh, the, the gratification, danger, and escape uh, in regards to sense experiences and that uh, the uh, escape is not attending to the signs and features, and I was going to read uh, just a little definition of that, because sometimes it's, uh, what, what does that mean, signs and features? And I forgot to bring up that. It was a footnote in one of uh, the Nikayas. But basically, uh, if you've ever wondered 
the definition, the commentary defines in any way is the, the uh, signs and features, the signs being sort of the um, global impression that you get of a sense object uh, and the feature more of the uh, specific aspects of the ab object that, uh, that uh, you notice um, or that you attend to. So that like, um, uh, if you see uh, a form that's uh, uh, beautiful, attractive, alluring, then the sign would be that sense of um, beauty, the sense of pleasure, the overall impression that you get when you look at something that, that is attractive. And the features are the specific features that, that um, give it that sense of beauty that you attend to, you know, whether it's, you know, a particular part of the appearance, you know, like if it's somebody who's attractive and you notice their eyes, the eyes would be considered the feature that then gives to that overall sense of, of beauty, which is referred to as the sign. So it's inappropriate attention to the signs and features, attending to things in a way that just feed the sense desire uh, rather than seeing it in a, a neutral uh, way, looking at it in a neutral way. So I thought that was an interesting commentarial explanation. Okay, if there's no uh, questions or comments, we'll uh, stop here then. <laughs>